Today's show is sponsored by CloudZero. For software-driven companies focused on growing margins, CloudZero is the only cloud cost intelligence platform that puts engineering in control by connecting technical decisions to business results. By analyzing cloud services like AWS and Snowflake, CloudZero provides real-time cost insights that help you maximize margins. Engineering teams can answer critical questions like, who are my most expensive customers? How much does this specific feature cost our business? What's the cost impact of re-architecting this application? With cost anomaly alerts via Slack, product-specific data views, and granular engineering context that makes it easy to investigate any cost, CloudZero is your complete cloud cost intelligence platform, connecting the dots between high-level trends and individual line items. Join companies like Drift, Rabbit7, and SeatGeek by visiting cloudzero.com slash cloudcast to get started today. That's cloudzero.com slash cloudcast. Cloudcast Media presents from the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina. This is the Cloudcast with Aaron Delp and Brian Gracely, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are. Welcome back to the Cloudcast. We are coming to you live from the massive Cloudcast studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. Hope everybody is doing well. Another Sunday perspective show and... uh, both Aaron and I were out at the KubeCon event this past week and uh, had a you know had a chance to sort of it was good to be back live with the the, the CNCF community the the open source community um, you know you you get a lot of things from you know what goes on in the media and what you can see on Twitter and other places where we all chat Reddit and other places but uh, you know to kind of do it live and have you know some some good conversations just to kind of see things with your eyes he you know hear things from people really really good. You know, and one of the things that was that was talked about a lot was sort of okay. This is you know KubeCon or CloudNativeCon, uh, whatever whatever you call it, is you know is really sort of the I'll call it sort of the the open source uh, AWS reinvent, if you will. You know, so if you if you look at it from the from the breadth of technology that's there, it's really sort of everything that that you kind of want from an open source perspective, at least. It's some part up the stack. Maybe it doesn't necessarily get a whole lot into languages, but uh, you know, gets into a lot of the things that are infrastructure and cloud services and uh, things around helping developers be successful, things around helping you manage costs and all sorts of stuff. And but there really was a lot of discussion this week about kind of you know how much is too much, and uh, you know how you know there was a lot of companies there, there was a lot of sponsors there, there was a lot of you know there's a lot of a lot of people there, practitioners and so forth, which is great. Um, you know, but it always sort of brings up, you know, can you uh, make money? Can you, you know, can, you know, does the industry do well when open source is the core of it? And, you know, I, I got to think about that a lot. And I was thinking about it a lot um, because of an article that uh, that Stephen O'Grady wrote from Red Monk. Uh, he wrote it about a month ago. Um, it didn't get a ton, a ton of coverage at the time. But uh, anytime Stephen writes stuff, um, you kind of have to go and dig into it a little bit. Stephen is, you know, one of the the really, really, um, you know, great thinkers in our industry, great writers in our industry. I've, I've had tremendous respect for Stephen. Um, you know, he's written all sorts of books from, uh, you know, developers, the no king, king makers to the software paradox. He's really kind of covers, you know, what the economics of software look like, um, you know, what the, where the influences in software look, look like. And he wrote an article again on the 23rd called dead end. And it really was sort of talking about, you know, what happens when you start mixing sort of commercial business models with, with open source licensing and, and, and has things changed. So I thought what I would do is, is, you know, thinking back on sort of the KubeCon event and uh, Stephen's really, really interesting article, sort of thought provoking article, I thought I would sort of dive into that, um, you know, in the context of, of where we are today. So I'm going to do that after the break. Do you have petabytes of data that need to be stored safely, sustainably, and cost effectively? Meet Fujifilm Tape. Yep, you heard that right. 
Tape. It's a solution that's become the backbone of many businesses' archive and data protection strategies. Tape allows you to store data with more longevity and efficiency than disk, and with much less expenditure over a 10-year period. Fujifilm has been pioneering innovation since 1934 and will continue to do so for many years to come. Learn more about how you can build your data storage strategy on tape with Fujifilm at builtontape.fujifilmusa.com. That's builtontape.fujifilmusa.com. And we're back. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, we're going to dig in a little bit into uh, into this article that Stephen O'Grady from Red Monk wrote called The Dead End. Um, really is is focused on Stephen does a very he always does a very good job and and I've sort of adopted this model myself. You know, it's really hard sometimes to to just you know take any topic. People will say, "Hey, can you comment on something?" Um, and you know, if if you listen to the show long enough, you know that I have a tendency to to sort of talk about historical context and how we got here. Um, and maybe that's just because I'm old, uh, and maybe it's because you know we've seen a lot of things in technology that, that tend to repeat themselves. Um, sometimes we see really good things repeated. Sometimes we see you know mistakes repeated. Sometimes we see people learn from mistakes and, and not make the same mistakes. Um, you know, and Stephen's one of those ones who you know again has been around the industry for a while and has sort of seen some things. So he always tries to put things in in historical context and sort of talk about both how the technology evolved, what the kind of the the influential things that moved um, you know moved trends, moved behaviors, moved buying patterns, and uh, and so basically what he talks about is is how you know when computing got started, it was very much. Um, you know, it was around hardware centric things, right? It was very IBM centric. Um, IBM essentially gave away the software for free as long as you were renting the hardware, kind of the mainframe model. Um, and then, you know, over time, open source kind of came along and said, hey, uh, you know, you know the, the, the underlying computing hardware is becoming commoditized. Um, you know, we had seen a shift from, you know, things like the IBM mainframe to things like Oracle databases where you were paying for software, proprietary software, Microsoft Windows, whatever it was. And, and then, you know, we saw open source come along and, and Linux first and then lots of other projects after that. Um, you know, and he really kind of, kind of dives into the history of how that changed and not only the economics of what people bought, but also, you know, kind of where per people perceived value in those things. Right. And, you know, open source is a really interesting concept, right. And I think we, we confuse sometimes open source as a technology and a development model and a community organizing model with kind of as a, as an economic model. Cause you know, we, we tend to go, oh, well, it's free. How do you make any money if it's free? All that sort of stuff. But then we see all these companies who go, hey, we, you know, we're, we're, we're based on an open source project. And what's amazing to me is, you know, even, even after all these years, even after, you know, probably almost a decade now of, nearly a decade of open source being a really common thing to be used. It's a place where a lot of the innovation really comes out of, you know, we still have people that sort of can't understand why, you know, there are commercial entities that try and, uh, you know, profit from open source. And it's maybe because they wrote it, maybe because they have some expertise around it, maybe because they're very good at delivering it, whatever it might be. But there still seems to be always this confusion of like, well, if the software is free, why would you exist? Or why would I need you? And all that sort of stuff. So anyways, what Stephen really explores is, is he's very good at exploring this idea of, you know, when, you know, who should... Who should benefit from open source, right? And and should it be should it be entirely free in which you know the the people that spend their time and their effort doing it don't get any compensation? Should there be means of compensation for the people that put in their time and effort to either build it or support it or you know create new capabilities around it, whatever? 
And then he kind of dives into, you know, the role in which venture capital, um, you know, plays a role in trying to accelerate some of these projects, um, whether it's, you know, funding startups or, um, you know, we, we joked a lot at, at, at the CNCF event um, that, you know, back in the day, we always talk about when when venture capital first gave money to companies, you know, they would sort of have to go and, and give it to, you know, four or five companies. They'd have to give it to Cisco for networking and EMC for storage and and Sun for hardware and maybe, you know, or Intel or whoever um, and Oracle for databases. Well, now, you know, your your money goes to one of the cloud providers. It goes to the CNCF to be able to, you know, to, to go to all the events and, and all that sort of stuff. And, um, uh, but it's, it's sort of interesting, you know, Stevens, Stevens sort of argument is what ends up happening is at some point, um, you know, these, these open source projects will have, you know, some number of commercial entities around some project. So let's take, let's take Kubernetes, for example, because it's a real, you know, very well-known project. It's been a very successful project. Um, we could use Linux as an example as well. Um, but Kubernetes is probably more, you know, top of mind for a lot of people. Um, you know, there's a lot of companies who, you know, spun out of, you know, the original Google project, uh, they did, they didn't spin out of the project, but, uh, you know, kind of, kind of came up because of that project, that project got a lot of, um, traction as an open source project. Obviously the entire CNCF exists because of Kubernetes, um, uh, events like KubeCon exist because of Kubernetes. Um, you know, and there was, there was literally, I'll say dozens of companies, maybe there was, you know, at this point, hundreds of companies, but dozens of companies who were just, you know, delivering Kubernetes in some way, shape or form. And, you know, what their value was could be debatable, you know, whether or not they were just kind of packaging bits, whether they were adding a lot of stuff on top of it, whether they were delivering it as a service, whether they were running it for you, whatever it might have been. And part of Stephen's argument is, you know, we get into these interesting situations in which, you know, his argument is not that anybody should should not be able to commercialize something. His argument is in when, you know, the companies doing it make changes to the licensing such that their users are restricted in some way, shape, or form from, you know, using it in kind of a traditional open source way. And I think it's a valid argument. I think, um, you know, there's always the argument of, uh, you know, is the thing that I'm getting from you actually the open source project or is it, you know, some variation of it? And by variation of it, what I mean is, you know, sometimes people will say, well, we have, you know, we have like a Kubernetes distribution but in essence, it's it's a fork of the distribution. Maybe you've you've made some changes to it such that, you know, whoever is using it um, isn't actually using kind of the exact same bits. So, for example, if they if they didn't like you anymore and they didn't want to use, they didn't want to pay you anymore for it, um, you know, would you be completely stuck with that software such that it's not, you know, like it's sort of Kubernetes, but it's not really Kubernetes, right? So that's one concern that people have is, you know, is it a fork? The second thing people are often concerned about is. You know, did you add a bunch of capabilities to this such that, you know, if I use your thing and then eventually I don't like you or you go out of business or whatever, that I'm kind of stuck with these extra features. And this is more of an argument of, you know, people people ask vendors like, well, you know, why did you do that? Oftentimes the, those added on things are, well, you know, the project itself doesn't do certain stuff. We did it to make your life easier. We did it to you know, make things more secure. There's more advanced security features or more advanced networking features or more advanced provisioning features, whatever those things might be. And those are really a decision that that customers have to make as terms of, you know, am I betting on the the commercial entity that I'm working with? Do I really need those features? Do those features give me added benefit and all that sort of stuff? 
And and I don't think Stephen's making an argument for either one of those things being a bad thing, right? His his thing is, look, the market will decide whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. And if you're really good at delivering something of value, again, whether it's feature capabilities or delivery lifecycle or you know, you're managing the service for them, those are all things that you can try and compete on and and differentiate yourself and and you know try and be uh, you know, viable in the market for, and, and, you know, many companies, uh, figure out ways to do that. Now, in most instances, you're not going to have, you know, 10 companies be successful. You're probably going to have two, maybe three in any given sort of bucket, um, be successful because the market just kind of can't typically, uh, sustain that many instances that the customers can't figure out how to sort through them. You know, one of them tends to win a lot of deals or second place or whatever it is. His argument is really more about, um, when companies start out with a very permissive open source license and then change their license. And, you know, I think this is a, it's an interesting place to be. Um, you know, he kind of frames it as it, it's, you know, it's being pushed by the venture capitalists as a way of, of kind of, you know, capturing customers in a way for some period of time so that they can monetize stuff. And I think it's a, it's an okay argument. I think, you know, it came up a number of times in the last couple of years, I think it's called like the SPSL. It's a you know license in which you know certain companies have or certain projects, certain companies who are behind certain projects have been concerned that you know one of the cloud providers, i.e., an Amazon or somebody, is just going to take their project, but also take like their naming rights. This came up with Mongo. It's come up with a few projects, um, you know, Elastic and others. Uh, and what they've done is they've said, okay, I'm going to change the license of my project such that um, the cloud providers can't. Uh, you know, can't just take sort of everything I've got, not only the software, which, you know, is oftentimes, you know, has permissible open source licensing, but also my, the project name, right. Which oftentimes, you know, is, is, is valuable. That trademark of that name is, is just as valuable as um, the thing, because it kind of conveys to people, Hey, that's the thing, you know, you trust the API that you write to. And, and it's an interesting situation because, <clears throat> you know, while a good chunk of the, of the stack, typically the lower layers of the stack, People are perfectly happy to, um, you know, to have a choice between the open source, a managed service, um, you know, commercial software. It seems to be problematic, maybe more higher level in the stack, um, sometimes in the data stack. Um, but also if it's really just, you know, kind of the, the, the company and the project protecting itself against service providers, it's a little, I guess it's a little different. And I, and I guess this is where, um, you know, this is, this is where, I sort of wonder, uh, you know, what alternatives there are. And this is, this is an area where I guess the, the thing is you not only have to be very good at software and put in sort of blood, sweat, and tears to build the software, build the community around it, but then you also have to be, you know, really good at, at operating stuff. And so this is, a, this is an interesting space because I think we're seeing a lot of companies who you know, have grown up as software companies, um, you know, a project has grown up as a software project, right? There's really no open source thing that originates as SaaS. Um, and even though we're seeing, as Steven has written really eloquently in, in the sort of the software paradox, you know, the value of software itself uh, isn't necessarily great, but, you know, the, the capabilities of being able to run it and or have somebody else run it become more valuable. You know, operating software is more valuable than just the software itself, which obviously makes sense. But yeah, he brings up sort of an interesting paradox and, and he sort of frames it as, you know, once once people start doing that where they have a, you know, sort of an open source project and then 
at some point they change the licensing such that it restricts other things from happening. Um, you know, it's sort of a dead end because you won't have venture capitalists invest in that anymore or more so he's not so worried about the venture capitalists, but he's worried about the projects itself. And I, and I kind of think about that and I'm like, it's fine to be concerned about that, but also I don't know what alternatives there are to that because, you know, there is, you know, if, if, if you're going to put in the, the effort to, to build the project, um, yes, somebody else could take it and be great at running it and all those sort of things. But, you know, allowing yourself to put certain protections in place, um, you know, to, to kind of shape the market a little bit is not unusual. We, we do that in, in nearly every industry. Um, you know, and the people that, that sort of know the, the domain, the best are, are, have done this for, for years and years and years. And so, yeah, I, I understand his argument of, you know, this is a bad thing for the industry, but I feel like it's really, it's kind of a niche part of the industry. I don't see this happening um, in all sorts of places, right? I see, I see the dynamics of it playing out much more in the context of, you know, vendors can add features that they don't necessarily open source. Vendors can, you know, put certain ways of packaging stuff together. Oh, it only is supported with, you know, this stack, this sort of vertical stack. Um, and customers have choice in those sort of things. And, you know, the other part of it is, you know, Amazon or whoever the cloud provider is, you know, could continue to offer a service that is based on the open source that if they're willing to, you know, put in the effort to, to maintain it and, and whatever, you know, they should be able to brand it with something that doesn't sort of steal the license and steal the trademark and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I think it's, I mean, I, I'm sure I'm missing something in, in terms of the really specifics of the license and so forth. But, you know, given given the nature of, of our industry and given the nature of, of you know, the ability to to compete and build technology that runs in multiple clouds and, and just sort of not have it, um, you know, it's one thing to take the technology. I think we're all perfectly fine with that. People take it, they reuse it, they do new good things with it. And, and I shouldn't even say take it, right? They're just using it because it's, it's permissive to use. But, you know, to use somebody else's name and so forth is, you know, it's sort of a gray area. Um, and I'm sure within the licensing, it, you know, it wasn't a gray area. And so you had to create some licensing. But, you know, it does feel like from the sake of, uh, you know, allowing those who have put in the work to make it what it is, um, to have the ability to, you know, to, to profit off it, or at least, you know, be compensated for their work in some way, shape or form, you know, it feels a little bit disingenuous to, to completely complain that they say, Hey, look, I'm trying to, you know, take some, some legal or business, uh, ways of, of protecting that at least in, in a certain sense. And, you know, if, if they make it such that nobody can use it and they, or they're, they're sort of bait and switching it. Yeah. They probably should be punished by the market and the market tends to punish those things over time. If it really is, you know, um, deceptive to customers, if it creates a, a, a hardship for customers, right. If they're, you know, stealing from customers or they're not delivering what they do, but you know, I don't know that, you know, the, the, this concern about the license for some part of it against service providers is, is enough to sort of make a claim that, you know, it's sort of, you know, the dead end for, for open source. I think open source is, is still very robust. Um, you know, I'm sure, you know, venture capitalists who most of, you know, if I look at KubeCon, most of those companies 
You know, they've taken venture capital money. The reason they're able to exist is not because they, you know, were bootstrapping it out of their garage. It's because, <clears throat> you know, they were able to bring an idea to market at some point because of a venture capital. It's a part of the industry. You may not like it. You may despise it. But it's, you know, it's, it, you know, capital is a part of growing these ideas, whether they come from venture capital or banking, you know, debt or whatever. Um, yeah, so I... It, the, this this of a lot of the things that have been written, and again, I don't ever like to criticize Stephen. I think he does a fantastic job. I just think, you know, kind of painting this picture that that sort of all of this space, um, you know, sort of falls into this dead end because of, you know, licensing for some small portion of it. Um, you know, I think you need to either be more specific about what it is uh, or, you know, just because, again, the industry looks looks to them. Uh, you know, looks to Red Monk and others is, um, you know, for, for for a lot of guidance, and they do they do a great job with guidance. So I, I feel good about the open source industry. I feel like um, you know licensing is, you know, it's always going to be a part of it, um, but I don't feel like it's it's that restrictive. I think the market is figuring out, you know, between VC and capital input and how communities are built and companies deciding, <clears throat> you know, how they deliver things to market if they decide to create a commercial entity for it. I think the market has, you know, the customers have lots of flexibility. I mean, we saw this at KubeCon. There were 10 or 12 different options, optional ways of getting certain technologies as well as the open source projects. So, you know, I feel like the market is not inhibited at any point, you know, in any means. Now, the economy may become problematic and, and all those sort of things. But, you know, I don't feel like this is enough to sort of paint a picture of, you know, sort of the, the end of open source or, or a huge inhibitor to open source. I feel like it's still very robust and vibrant and so forth. So anyways, um, it's always great to sort of have lots of opinions about these things. Uh, you know, I think sometimes when you make some of the arguments, it's good to have some details in there uh, as opposed to maybe just some, some broad generalities. I think that confuses people sometimes. Um, but anyways, uh, you know, it, we're going to have a few more shows talking about KubeCon and sort of the industry as general. Um, you know, I think <clears throat> between KubeCon and AWS reInvent, even though they're at the end of the year, there's always, they're always really good barometers of, you know, sort of lighthouses of where our industry is at any you know, given point in time. Um, and it allows people to to have good conversations and figure out, you know, where's it going next? Um, what's, you know, where's it going? Where's it going next? What things have influenced it? Um, and so I think we're going to have a lot of really, really good conversations between now and the end of the year uh, between this show and, and reInvent and a few other things between then and now. So thank you all for listening. Uh, another Sunday perspective. Hope you're all doing well. Hope you're all safe. If you went to KubeCon, I hope you got home safe. And uh, it was good to see a lot of people this week. So with that, we'll wrap it up. Talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to The Cloudcast. Please visit thecloudcast.net to find more shows, show notes, videos, and everything social media. 